A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I'm not finished yet, it took me a long time to get here. Both parents have, have spoken with each other and, uh, and they regret what happened. They've had a frank discussion with each other and they're, they're both of them are keen to, to now focus on getting back to their county jerseys. That these fellas will get such a shit shock next Saturday evening that we'll put them back in their houses for 10 years. So we're nearly there, Connor. Um, the club's in a north back training. Um, lucky enough for them. Inter-county training's back on Monday. The draws for the championship are next week. I don't know, I can smell the freshly cut grass, Connor. I just can't get into the Portlaoise grounds to actually kick on the freshly cut grass, but we're nearly there. <laughs> not, not long to go now, Willie. I think uh, I passed the, the, the pristine Calcimaggi A grounds there around the weekend. They were in cutting the grass, so the grass was just cut. There's nothing like that smell, uh, especially when the evenings are like this, so... Nearly there, just hang tight for a couple more weeks and we'll be back. Yeah, and the draws for the 2021 uh, Championship, they're being split up all over the place. They're going to take place in, R- in RT next week. So the Munster football is at 7.35am on Morning Ireland and the Hurling's at 8.35. And then the Leinster Championship is going to be on Tuesday on Morning Ireland. And the Connacht and Ulster Football Championships are taking place on the 6-1 News on Monday and Tuesday, respectfully. So uh, so I, I don't really know what RT you're doing here. I suppose everything together is a full show in itself. They obviously don't want to do a full show in, the, in itself. Not sure why they don't want to do that. Any thoughts on, on it? Like, I mean, they do rugby shows. Why couldn't they do a championship draw show? I don't know. Uh, I I just I can't believe that Munster hurling is uh, stuck away in Morning Ireland half eight in the morning. <laughs> Connacht Championship is given pride of place in the six one news. That that was the biggest surprise for me. I, my my takeaway fully from it was at least that um, you know we're used to the GA Championship draws. The only problem with them is that they take place about eight months before the championship actually st- takes place. So at yeah. least that's not happening this time, you know. And at least you know I, I kind of like the idea that come Monday and Tuesday, that's when the draws are being made. That's when the inter-county teams will be returning. You know, so they might go back to train. Well, that's when they, if they haven't been done doing anything so far, which they shouldn't be. But they'd be going back to training on Monday, Tuesday night, and maybe have a bit of a bounce in their step, knowing who they got in the draw. You know, if Galway got a Mayo or Tyrone were to draw Donegal, for example. So, but I don't know why necessarily. There's no um, there's no there's no TV kind of draw to to kind of give it a bit more pizzazz before before the start of the league and championship. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. Inter-county training goes back on. 
intercounty training goes back on the the Monday. You know, the Monday night for the championship draw as the TV show, I think, might might fit pretty well. But I've already mentioned the clubs in the north of Ireland were allowed back training on Monday. And one of those clubs was the great Cross McGlynn Rangers. And Aaron Kernan joins us on the line now to see how that went. How's it going, Aaron? Not too bad, Colin. Not too bad. We, we were saying that this is the only time that the six counties in the north will accept being treated differently to the rest of Ireland. <laughs> yeah, I'd say that's a... That's a given, uh, particularly round their neck of the woods. Uh, <laughs> that, would, that, that would be for sure. But uh, yeah, it is. It was, I have to say, and it, it was brilliant. Um, just to head back up to the club uh, again Monday evening, uh, freshly cut grass, nice calm evening for us, and just great to see uh, a lot of the boys' faces again, uh, which unfortunately, just the way things have panned out, we haven't done for coming up in seven months now. Seven months, this is crazy. Like, was it mayhem up at the club with one team finishing, the other team getting out, you know, coming and going? It, it actually wasn't because, to be fair to the club, last year, um, just coming back whenever COVID restrictions were easing, uh, we, we brought in a new COVID officer who was basically overseeing um, uh, pitch selection or uh, pitch time slots. So it all was done in advance because we've known for... for a uh, number of weeks now when we are allowed to go back uh, it was all done in, in fairly good order um, right. so by the time our, our seniors were, were coming on to the onto our training pitch which would at least uh, that was at 8 o'clock um, the only other teams that actually were left in, in the far field from us was uh, on the 15 team um, who are managed by uh, Tony McEntee. Um <laughs> so he, he, he he's double jobbing with Slago and, and around the 15s which is great to see um, so yeah we were the only ones that were still out at, at that stage of night so it was um, no, it was just it was great to get back out onto the field again I have to say it, it felt like a, a lifetime since we, we last did it um, and yeah it was brilliant it was one more step in the right direction for us all So we were hearing there at the start of the show about a team in, in East Belfast who um, on the first night out did a HIIT session and did a did a did some sort of a long run. What did you do? Cross McGlen Rangers, surely to God, will use the ball the very first night back after seven months. We did. Um, to be fair, now, over this past number of months, obviously we've been given our own programs to do in terms of running and strength and conditioning and that there. But um, no, the management would be very conscious that. Um, I suppose what happened this last year was. Whenever we went in lockdown, there's not there's nothing really in cross in terms of public parks or whatever to do any running. So with the pitches right. been strictly closed at that stage, we found we picked up an awful lot of injuries whenever and soft tissue injuries whenever we come back last year in terms of hamstrings, grinds and that. So um I think they've used um the knowledge gained from last year to prepare properly for now. Um so no, it very much was about just easing by back in. Like I say, we have been doing our own bits and pieces of running um but it was the um the tempo runs that are, are the new things now um that, that boys were doing a bit of but one of the other big aspects was just getting used to the ball and kicking yeah. it again. Um I, I bought three footballs myself about a month ago and I was heading up to the field just to do a bit of kicking with, with my wee boys and that there and uh to be honest with you, like you were aching after because I just literally hadn't kicked the ball at that stage for five, six months. Um, and it, yeah, it's just using muscles differently, kicking around the corner, trying to kick for distance, kicking off the outside of your boot. You don't find that having not done it for such a long time, you do be aching. So it was a matter of easing in in all aspects in terms of your, your running and your skills. 
Well, that's it. 13th of September was your county final. So, geez, you've had a long time to dwell on that county final loss, Aaron. Like, I mean, seven months without, usually you like maybe get out early the next year and get over it and play a few league games. It's a long bloody time to be sitting, sitting idle. I presume there was a good few of the lads way out of, way out of practice. Um, yeah, it, it wasn't actually too bad. As I say, it was kept fairly basic. Um, it, it didn't get too hectic, to be honest with you. But um, fitness-wise, everyone seems to be in, in fairly good nick. Um, there, there couldn't be too many complaints, I would say, uh, from that. Air team, too, you would have an awful lot of them that are younger, um, that they would probably be college and that there. So they've had plenty of time to, to keep themselves in good nick. And, and to be fair, only for it, having something to do, you know, in terms of giving you a bit of a program to put some structure to your weeks. Uh, winter was fairly grim for everybody. So, um, yeah, for, from our point of view, it looks like a lot of the boys have used whatever bit of spare time they had to, to get out and about and do whatever bit of training that they could do um, for their own sanity more so than anything else. Yeah. So do, have you played a little bit of a match yet in training? I presume you were out again on when on or last night. Um, like, I mean, yeah. have you have you swung over a pint yet? Oh, I have absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, there was uh, usually you'd have your three or four boys uh, who would stay behind after training, and they'd be pinging shots over the bar. The, basically, everyone was staying over, and the worldies off the outside the boot from the sideline. The whole lot, uh, everyone, everyone was getting in on the act. Um, but yeah, we did. Yeah, sort of try to cover Everton in terms of of your your foot pass and a couple of shooting drills. Um, last night then was maybe just a wee bit of a step on where. Um, it was sort of trying to reenact movement more than anything in terms of getting the ball from defence into your forwards and just trying to get um, everyone starting to think about their game and think about the roles in terms of what position they're in because literally it has been so long since we've done it. Um, th- that's more what last night was. And I have to say it, w- it was very enjoyable because um, it's just because we haven't done it um, and, it's an aspect that I suppose you can get great benefit out of in terms of being in defence, knowing where you have to move, you know, if a keeper receives the ball, knowing where you're going to deliver it and then again having your forwards that their outlets in, in your half forward lane, your full forward lane and start to work on just a wee bit of movement that it has people thinking and a bit of enjoyment to it as well um, um, as well as putting a bit of structure so actually I really enjoyed that last night now because it, it put a wee bit more of a game-related feel to the thing, um, which which was great. I'm going to have to let you go, Aaron, for the mental health of a lot of the listeners when you start telling us about <laughs> staying back after training to kick scores and have little mini competitions. I just don't think people can deal with this anymore, Aaron. I'm going to have to let you go. I'll talk to you later. Thanks, Aaron. Take care, Colin. We can only dream, Connor, to be back kicking a few uh, scores over the bar um, and being back out on the pitch. I know you're positive about the club situation, but we really are in limbo. I know the inter-county starting on the 19th, but we have no idea yet when clubs, um, you know, in the south are going to be back. Yeah, just before I get on to that, well, it's funny you say that about uh, the north, because um, our Northern Ireland, because uh, Lee Costello, he joined the sports show team in the last couple of weeks. He's involved with the East Belfast Club. 
So I was asking him there on Tuesday morning how training on Monday night went. And he said that they did a 5K run in a, in a HIIT session. Ah, <laughs> Jesus. So they said they didn't see a ball at all. So now the plan the plan was to incorporate the ball into training uh, as the kind of the week went on. But that was his first night out. So no, I was just wait, wait. But that's criminal. Like, I, I think, like any manager in the country that gets their players back for the first time and inter-county managers, surely, and to do something that they would have been doing and bored of doing for the last three months. That's criminal. It is. I, yeah, I couldn't believe it because like it's bad. And, you know, we've talked about this before when it's terrible when you go out for a session and, you know, you see the bag of balls there and the manager might say to you, oh, don't worry, you don't have to worry about them. You won't be seeing them for the evening and that the impact it kind of has a morale. So you can only imagine that after being absent for how many months and then being told, no, no balls tonight. We're just going to do exactly what you've been doing individually <laughs> for the last how many months. But, but uh, I know, no, I, I accept the fact that the manager has to see where your fitness is at, but don't do that on the night to get back. Do it the next weekend, you know, let's do, okay, lads, we'll see where you're all at fitness-wise. Everything has to be with the ball the first week. Jesus Christ, as a team, oh my God, that would, that, I think I'd, I think I'd go home. I don't think I'd, I don't think I'd do that session. I'll have to follow up. That was the Monday night now. I'll have to follow up and lead to see how the rest of the week went, but I couldn't believe when he said that to me anyway. Jesus. But right, and, go yeah. on. As for the clubs down here, well, yeah, I just, I don't know, am I being kind of swept away by the optimism by hearing that various, you know, the, the inter-county is back, that the, the training in Northern Ireland is back. You know, we're hearing stuff on the 4th of May that more stuff might be opening. So I know, by, have I been kind of swept away by that in the combination of the good weather by expecting the club to follow? And maybe my, my enthusiasm will be dampened in the next couple of weeks. But I just I, I just have a good feeling that, you know, come the, for the first couple of weeks of May, that it won't be long till after that, till to, to, to the clubs are allowed back. Yeah, definitely should. So antigen testing. I um, don't know if anybody listening knows much about antigen testing. Um, I kind of re- read up about it because a lot of countries in Europe have been using antigen testing for a good while. And of course, in Ireland, we're so late to the party. Um, it's only been considered by government now. Um, because the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, who's very worried about how Twitter, how many tags, how many times he's tagged on Twitter by the department. <laughs> he's just received a report from the COVID-19 rapid testing expert group. Now, give me a bloody break. Anyways, each of these tests cost five quid. Right. And that's compared to 150 euros for a PCR test. Now, some people think the PCR test is the gold standard. The antigen test, they say, is not as accurate. But I go so far as to say the antigen test is actually better because PCR tests pick up asymptomatic carriers that are not in any way infectious, whereas antigen testing pretty much picks up your positive when you're kind of in that eight day, two days before kind of, you know, or a couple of days after where you're actually infectious because I don't want to get too boring. One looks at RNA of the virus. The other looks for specific proteins that are made and you only have them when you're actually infectious. If you're to ask me, antigen testings are five euros compared to 150 and they're better anyways. But we're only we're only looking at them now. So the thing about this is Leinster Rugby have made a submission to the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts and the Gwiltocht, um, is to start using antigen testing to get some supporters into the ground. So what they want is you buy a ticket for the game, you come to the game that night with your 
negative antigen test that you took um, during the day and your ticket and you go in. Now, they want no more than 2000 supporters, which is about 11 percent um, of presumed as the RDS, uh, yeah. RDS capacity. And they're going to separate them right throughout the ground. Now, I if, if it was up to me, if you come with a negative antigen test, I'd be getting way more than 2,000 in there. And, you know, not a full stadium maybe. But anyway, so they're being very um, cautious and careful with this. And the Leinster Rugby CEO, Mike Dawson, said it's a suggestion. We obviously have a couple of matches coming up in late May. And it's, it's a possible way of getting crowds back in through the turnstiles. Um, it's not only for rugby. This could apply to Gaelic soccer or whatever. So the FAI got wind of these antigen tests, what Leinster were doing, and they're in talks with the government about replicating Leinster's initiative by returning stats, um, fans for League of Ireland games. Now, this all seems very positive to me. It seems, you know, uh, very proactive. And the GEA have no plans to use these antigen tests. Like, I mean, I don't know. It just really frustrates me. Like, I mean, Peter McKenna was quoted in the Irish Times. He says that would be the, the ambition would be to see some people allowed into the stadium by the end of the summer. Uh, that would uh, demonstrably show um, that we're getting back to normal. There are issues with public transport, etc. And we'll keep an eye on how that works in Britain. Like, I, I don't know, Connor. Like, I mean, why would the GA not want to use these antigen tests and get supporters into the league games and do what Leinster Rugby are doing. What are they afraid of? So, yeah, I, I'm not saying I, I disagree with you, Willie, right? So I'm, I'm trying to answer the second question there is in why the GEA mightn't do it, let's say, right? So just yeah. looking into it. Um, so that, that report that you're on about from Stephen Donnelly, I think that the, the, the publication of that was only was only fairly recent, I think. So it maybe only became it only became possible for the likes of Leinster Rugby or for sporting organisations to submit proposals as to how they might use antigen testing to get crowds back fairly recently. So that's that's the start, right? And then I would imagine that so so you're talking about the Leinster game there. Trial games have to take place first. So I think the Leinster trial game, they're saying it's going to be as early sometime next month. And then I I, I was looking into it and I saw that the League of Ireland the, the possible date for a League of Ireland trial game would be the 21st of May, right? So by that stage, uh, the Hurling League and the Football League will both have started. And I don't know, the, the only other thing I can read into it is that Leinster Rugby's professional organisation, Leinster Rugby professional, uh, the League of Ireland semi-professional, whatever, that if it was to be implemented for league games, that it would be up to the individual counties to have to do it. And maybe they think that there's not enough time to organise that for the National League. And, and maybe think that like, well, if we're going to do it for any any for for anything, try and get it in place for the championship, which would be. But, but Peter Mc, Peter McKenna is not saying for the championship. Like I mean, the championship starts in in July. Maybe is that, is that what you're reading into it? That, that, like, that, that's what I was reading into it. That they might look to delay it for the league and then do it for the championship instead. Because by the end of June, you're talking about having eighty percent of the population vaccinated. So if you're not, I I can't, I couldn't understand a reason why you wouldn't be looking at the prospect of getting crowds back into games at that stage. Yeah, I for me, I would be I would have been pushing antigen testing since January. It's working in Europe. Like, I mean, I understand it, but I think the GA are slow to lobby this stuff. You know, they can put pressure on government for stuff. Like, for example, what about the one million that have been vaccinated already? Why can't they go to the league matches? Why are the GA not saying that's one million people? Out of the how many million in the Republic? Four and a half million. Why can't the GEA be proactive to say, why can't our vaccinated members now go to games? Do you know, like, I yeah. see them just always waiting to be given permission. Do you know what I mean? I think they're, they're, they're almost, like, we know from last summer, the GEA is actually more conservative than NEFED, if that's even possible. 
But do you think Bill Woolley that all stems back to well, the GA was more conservative at the start. Then they got kind of, you know, a bit confrontational towards the end. And maybe they, they asked they asked for a direct response from Nefford. I think that was towards the end of the summer. And then what happened then was all the stuff around the club games, which obviously contributed to a lot of COVID cases. So I don't know, is the GA maybe being seen a bit, a, you know, a little bit reluctant to put its head above the parapet, especially given what's gone on with the Dublin footballers and the modern footballers with public breaches of, of the of the regulations in recent yeah. weeks. That, and that's they are... Not, they are they are looking for they are looking for money from the government to run the the league, so I suppose they don't maybe they don't want to rock the boat, but it's definitely in their interest. These these antigen testing instead of saying we're not looking at for the league, I'd love to see like what you said. Look, we're a little bit late for the league, um, but that's absolutely something we want. We want to get you know ten thousand people into Crow Park with negative antigen tests, and we want to have a decent summer. Wouldn't that be a lovely message to send out? Instead of, no, we're not looking at that right yeah, now. And, and Willie, it's a legitimate message to send out as well, because for my sins, I happened to be looking at a, a Rock This Committee meeting <laughs> the other day with where Ronan Glynn was talking. And he was just, he was kind of, he was talking about the implications for if 80% of the population are vaccinated by the end of June. And he was saying that, like, he sees large tracts of society being able to open by then, even for, like, he was saying that there's been suggestions that, you know, fully vaccinated people will be able to do, you know, they could go to games, as you suggested. But he was saying that, like, by that stage, the disease, if 80% of the population are vaccinated, the virus should be under control to the extent that, you know, you don't necessarily have to be vaccinated to be able to go back to and kind of normal things, whatever. So, like, I don't, I don't, don't ask me to go deep into the implications of the yeah. science of that, but I took that as a very positive sign. And from a GA point of view, it tallies perfectly with, if 80% of population vaccinated by the end of June, the championship, championship is just starting. And at that stage, some degree of crowds to be able to get back in and give the championship a proper summer feel with crowds back there as well. Exactly. I'd say there's as much chance now as of 80% of the population being vaccinated well, by the end of June. Now, my poor mother was supposed to be vaccinated last Thursday, this day last week, and they rang her up and they put it back for three weeks, not just a few days, not just a week, three weeks, the wow. poor woman, terrified at home, looking looking forward to getting this vaccination. And they, they sent her back three weeks. Like, I mean, so I don't know, the end of June, they haven't they haven't reached any target. Yeah, so I don't see why the end of June. I don't see how the end of June target is is even remotely possible, as far as I'm concerned. Anyways, I'm not getting sucked into. Uh, <laughs> I'm not getting sucked into that conversation. Uh, well, I'm sucking myself into that conversation. I'm not saying you're doing it to me. Dublin have lost their home advantage um, in the league. Um, Monaghan, uh, Cork, and down. We mentioned this last week, but it's interesting that. Um, Dublin won't have any home games. So in the National League, obviously there's groups of four, so you have three games. So you have uh, some teams would be lucky and have two home, one away. Um, Dublin had two away and one at home and they've lost that. That's against Kerry. So it's in Portlaoise. And I think the same thing has happened with Monaghan, Cork and down too. So they're all going to be on the road um, for their for their league games. So I suppose Dublin will have a little giggle and say, Jesus, we play all our, go all our games at home. Look at us now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, if I saw the joke about Dublin having to play and now having to play their home games in Crow Park as opposed to yeah. Parnell Park, if I saw it once, I saw it a million times after the breach there last week. But that, that listen, it, it, it seems fair. I mean, that's, they're, only, they're still only losing one home game. And whatever about their other teams, I expect it to have minimal impact 
on uh, on Dublin's league campaign. Yeah, Larry Murphy had said that um, after this, and I suppose you're a little bit late with this quote, but anyways, it came out after last week's show. He says, I think it has done us rep... He's talking about Dublin, Cork, Monaghan, uh, well, more Dublin and Monaghan, they're the more recent ones. He says, I think it has done us reputational damage, which uh, we're going to have to work to get back. There's no appetite for any breaches in society at the moment. So undoubtedly it has. Now, there's no appetite for any breaches in society. I'd change that in society with on Twitter or on social media because I don't see the same reaction when I speak to people about Dublin getting caught or Monaghan getting caught. I don't see any outrage in the people I speak to in person. I just see that online. And I don't think people are themselves online. I think they're fake. I think they, pre- they pretend to be people often that they're not perfect. You know, they never make mistakes. I don't think there is. And this reputational damage. There's people out there, Connor, that hate the GEA and nothing's going to change their 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 opinion of the GEA. They grab all association. A lot of soccer fans you'd hear it from. I don't think it's done the GEA any reputational damage really at all. Maybe I'm gone too extreme on that. Yeah, a couple of counties stepped out, out of line. I'd actually go so far as Dublin and say, this team thought nobody was looking at them. And they're still trained in a group of nine with no contact. Like, I mean, if anything, this is incredibly responsible. Monaghan probably a little bit more. They all went together on the same pitch. But you you paint the picture of Dublin, reputational damage. This is a team that thought no one were looking. And they're yeah. still so they're still so responsible and you know, well behaved that they didn't even do a contact session. They just did a non-contact. They followed all the rules in secret, Connor. Like, like we could actually twist this around to say that the, the Dublin should be applauded. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, I don't know if we go that far now with the affairs. Reputational damage. Uh, like, I don't. I listen. I don't think the the Dublin or Monaghan incidents in isolation or maybe even collectively did the GA reputational damage. I would say, Woolly, that the, there's been reputational damage done to the GA over the last year or so. But I think that's more to do with um more to do with what happened after the club, after the county finals towards the end of last year. I think there was a big reaction to that. And I think, you know, in a lot of cases it was justified. But you're not you made a good point there. You're not going to go away from the fact that some people just don't like some people just don't like the the, the GA and are going to use any opportunity they can to bash them. Do you know yeah. what I mean? But I think yeah, I th- Larry McCarthy had to say that to a certain degree as well because he's he's speaking as the head of the association with two fairly high profile breaches that it did do reputational damages. But I would I would query as you did. I would quibble with his line about there's no appetite for any breaches in society. There's no appetite for any breaches maybe to be called out publicly. But as we said last week, there's a lot of people you know maybe having a go on Twitter or people and then not looking in the mirror because they're probably breaching said regulations. Yeah. Themselves. yeah, I would like Larry Murphy to have commented on saying, you know, the chances of catching it outdoors is very, very minimal. It's point, uh, point one of a percent. And, you know, these lads weren't, you know, in any way, you know, risking public health. I'd like to have, for him to have done that. It can't all be, you know, kind of going on the same road of giving out. Anyways, to move on from that, um, Connor, hurling teams, right, have only three weeks preparation for the National League, right? So we have the we have the dates. So they're back training on the 19th of April and they ha- only have until the 8th of May. Now, the 19th of April is a Monday. So they only have two free weekends before they start on the 8th of May. Now, then they go in to five league games in six weeks and then they have a two-week break to go into a, Len- uh, a Leinster and Munster league-styled championship. Jesus, now that is tough going. Yeah, no, no, it is. Like, uh, uh, we 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 kind of said that last week, and I think 
I I was pointing out maybe specifically the danger of players who they can't they they're, they're simply whatever they're doing individually won't be able to replicate what they're doing in a game and that what's likely to happen as a result and I think we saw this maybe more in the club game when it came back last summer was there's going to be so many soft tissue injuries as a result and the only thing I'll say on the back of it is that like there there had to be a balance there between trying to get a decent season you know and then you know given given uh, counties enough time so that three weeks to me isn't enough. But then did, did they need that time to fit in a, a reasonable league campaign? Yeah, know? I think the league, I think the league is going to be, it's going to be seen as a, like, I mean, to a certain extent it is anyways seen as a warm up competition to the championship. But I think the league is going to be see, going to be more like one of the January competitions where players are going to be tried out. There's five games in hurling. The first three will be three completely different teams probably put out there and they have to do that like I mean they have no choice like Mikey Kiley who's the Limerick SNC coach he said a six week pre-season is more than ample he's actually arguing that pre-season in GA is too long in a normal year you know like a November December January like a three month kind of one he's saying six weeks pre-season is enough uh, for professional players and that's what we see ourselves that he's talking about the Limerick hurlers you cut that in half now so like I mean there is no question that the league especially the first three games you know and maybe the, maybe when players have played one game taken the game off you know are building up that kind of uh, resistance to, um, to to actually play in a proper competitive game that maybe in the last two hurling games and in the you know or there won't be a final the last two hurling games we might see them ramping it up a little bit but I wouldn't be expecting much from round one two and three yeah well well whatever about the hurling league Willie, what I was thinking about kind of how um even when we were saying there that the championship draws are being made next week, I think that, uh, like, I know a lot of planning will have gone into training already, but that might that might dictate how certain teams train towards, you know, how, how they kind of scale their training over the coming months. Because if, say, an Ulster Championship team is, is if, say, Tyrone were to meet Donegal, you know, in the first round of the Ulster Championship, that might, they might be trying to peak for that, as opposed to if they didn't get a, a game in the Ulster Championship, which wasn't as maybe competitive, do you know what I mean? But, it's interesting what Mike Kiley says there as well because he's on about professional athletes and but so he's taken the fact that like these lads are they're training the whole year round anyway but it's different this time because they might be training the whole year round and they might have been doing what they've been doing individually but they're still coming in on the back of four months of having done doing individual training have to change that to collective training so like I think Limerick like Limerick are the best conditioned team possibly in the GAA they'll be okay you know, and they have such a big squad that they'll be able to rotate. They'll rotate, you, yeah. Do what yeah. They have to do, but I think it's it's probably the lesser teams, you know, that don't have the don't have the the kind of the luxury of being able to rotate as much as as Limerick do that that will probably suffer over the course of the league. Yeah, Mike McGurn has been talking this week. He's another SNC guy. He's worked with the All Blacks. He's worked with the Ireland Rugby Team. He's worked with Everton. He's worked with a lot of uh, Gaelic football um, counties as well, and he's complaining about the training load. Um, he says a lot of county teams are doing training that has no relevance to Gaelic football whatsoever. One of the fundamentals that we look at, kick, catch, put the ball over the bar and tackle. It doesn't take much more than that. And yet we're doing things that have no relevance to that. But it ticks boxes and I don't agree with it. He said it's not what you can lift in the gym or what you can run on the track. It's what you do on the Sunday and on, on the pitch. And like, I mean, you know, you, you couldn't I couldn't agree more with that, really, because I know you have to have your body at, in a certain uh, shape. But like the amount of our 5K runs and, and you know, our nonsense that really doesn't have every everything should be done with the ball. Pretty much. There's very, very rarely you should have the ball or the hurl 
or the slitter out of your hand because all those like the aerobic fitness uh, drills and all that stuff it can all be done and there's 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 actually a huge value in doing a really hard run and then having to execute a skill of the game like a kick or a point when your legs are tired that's what that's what separates the great players is is decision making when you're tired because when you're really tired it's your head that goes just as much as your legs yeah, yeah, yeah. And it marks out the great players and the great teams. Uh, well, the, the ability to do that under pressure, as we've kind of seen, or or a while fatigued, as we've seen the last couple of years as well. Like he's, I like Mike McGurn to me is spot on about the GA mentality. Do you know, as in like if one team, if the team down the road is training four times a week, we should be training five. Yeah. And it's more about the quantity. People don't necessarily care about the quality of the training. The fact that they're doing more thinks that they're, you know, they think that they're going to be naturally fitter, kind of as a result. And he's also right about. The pro- like I, I'd love to hear him kind of dig a bit deeper into that and what, you know what he thinks, you know what what specifics that he thinks that GA inter county teams are overdoing it on because you know I'd I'd hundred percent agree with him that the priorities are are wrong in terms of there's not enough focus on the skills of the game and there's probably too much fo- focus on the SNC side. Oh, although I probably would say that I think that's been redressed um in the in the last few years from 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 what I could see. But it was interesting as well what he said. Mike McGurn said that um. You know, four weeks of a preseason that isn't nearly enough for an inter-county team, and you're balancing that that out with Mikey Kiley saying that six weeks is enough. So, like these guys are, you know, at the, right at the top of their trades, and they're kind of have different opinions on, yeah. on kind of what works. Yeah, it's like all these; they've all got different opinions. Like these scientists telling us to stay in our houses, they've all got they've all got different opinions on everything as well. Jesus Christ, why can't you all agree on something like letting us out of our out of our houses? But it's always it is the truth in the GA. Like I mean, I remember even the nineties; you'd go away for a weekend and you'd be allowed out have a few pints, and they'd be like, "You can have these few pints, but only on the condition now that we're up training at seven o'clock in the morning. We'll run that beer out of you." And it's like. Would it would not be more beneficial now to let us sleep until 11 and get a good night's sleep and then maybe run the shit out of us at 11 o'clock if you want. But this idea that, you know, the whole idea will run the beer out of you. Like, I don't know if there's any science, science behind that other than an urban myth. There is no, and it's interesting, like, I, I know I've, I've heard of a couple of um, stories of, like, say, GA inter-county training camps um, in recent years when they might go away for a week. And that was the that was the 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 initial thought originally that they'd train their you know they'd train hard for a week and then maybe if they're leaving on a Friday on the Thursday night they'd have a big blowout and then you know run it off them on the Friday and then go back and then the the changing is the thinking has changed completely where that's a complete waste of your time and the way they were doing it the, more recently was they might have might go out on their first night there recover properly the next day and then have you know they then train properly for yeah. the week when they're coming back then at the end of the week they can feel that they have a body of work done and they can feel the benefit from it as a result. So, um, yeah, just the, 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 the science of it is kind of, um, is obviously getting better, which is, which is, which is great because as what what you said, you know, with the, the, the tradition of kind of getting up in the morning and running the beer out, yeah, while, you know, it makes for a few great stories. Probably heard them over the years from a scientific point of view. It doesn't do you much benefit at all. Yeah, the obvious one is dehydration and muscle tears. There's the very obvious ones without getting uh, too much into it. So Terry Highland's not a fan of Zoom calls, Connor. Who would have thought this now? <laughs> um, so this is in the Irish Times. He said everything in sport and life comes down to trust. So, OK, I'll keep reading the quotes. Everything in sport and life comes down to trust. Uh, says Highland. When it comes down to it, we've given the players programs to get on with it. And the basic fact of the matter is that it's either up to them. To, it's up to them to either do it 
or don't do it. We'll know in a fortnight when we get them together who's done the work and who's only half done it. You trust them to do it because they know when they show up, they'll get back out on the pitch whether they have done it or not. Instead of an hour and a half on a Zoom meeting, wouldn't it be better if they had that hour to go and take um, on the responsibility for themselves? Because in the end, your work shows up on the, on the playing field. And I don't know, does somebody need to tell Terry Highland that Zoom meetings aren't about uh, saying, did you do the run? Yeah, everybody do the run, put up their hands. It's not about interrogating players whether they did the runs or not. I presume Zoom meetings are about staying in contact with each other and a little bit about team bonding that's important there might be new lads on the panel playing a few games together maybe having a drink together some night maybe like why is he associating a zoom an hour and a half zoom meeting with finding out how much training they've been doing when I read the quotes first, Willie, I was thinking, has Terry Highland just decided to manage a club team instead of a county <laughs> team? <laughs> that 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 sounds like the kind of a club, a Zoom call that the that club managers throughout the country are doing. Like if Terry Highland is in trouble if he thinks that he has to check in with his players that they're not doing programs at inter-county level. It, it definitely happens at club level, but it shouldn't be happening at that level. But well, as you said, do, what would it do then at club level? Would they literally go around to each individual and say, are you doing it? Like, no, I mean... Not. They they might do that, but like the, there's more of a danger of club players not doing it as opposed to intercounty. That 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 was my point. I mean, like if 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 Terry Highland feels the need to check in with these lads, you know that they're not doing it. Well, then he's in trouble from the start. I said, but, it, but is it that his understanding of a Zoom meeting? His understanding of a Zoom meeting is basically to go around each member of the panel and waste an hour and a half asking them did they do the running? Well, the line there wouldn't it be better if he had that hour and a half to take on the responsibility for himself? Because in the end, your work shows up in the playing field. That, that to me, sounds like that's that's how Terry Island is interpreting the need. <laughs> I think so, yeah. I think someone needs to explain to him the benefit of his players seeing each other face to face and the whole panel interacting and maybe having a bit of crack together. Yeah, well, you know, the, the, you mentioned it there, I think, uh, about like maybe having a drink. Didn't the Dublin lads do cooking contests on Zoom? Yeah. Limerick lads did something similar. And they spoke of it. They spoke of it unprompted, I think, after winning the All-Irelands last year. So, you know, it obviously made a difference. But I, I can maybe have some sympathy with, like, Terry Island might have misinterpreted why <laughs> to have Zoom meetings. But I can see where he's getting at in, in that, like, it, you know, it doesn't take long for Zoom fatigue or virtual call fatigue to sit in. And I'm just thinking this time last year, we were, what, only a few weeks into lockdown and everybody was doing Zoom quizzes. Everybody was doing online bingo, virtual drinks and thing to meet up you know, and then to have any sort of connection. And then it gradually sort of faded out. So the worst thing you could do in this situation is keep doing it, you know, if you have to force it. Do you know yeah. what I mean? There's no yeah. point. You, you just have to let it go if that's the case. So maybe if we, you know, Terry was to elaborate a little more, uh, that that's the type of thing he'd say. But from what I could see anyway, he's misinterpreting the point of having these Zoom meetings in the first place. Maybe he is. Maybe Ter Terry Highland's um, old school. He's probably, yeah. he'd be on the kind of tick side of uh, personality wise, a bit like myself. I don't mean that as an insult at all. I like kind of contrary kind of uh, men. He gives me that impression and he's not entertaining these Zoom calls. And listen, that's all right with me. Like you say, though, maybe there's more of an explanation. I I, I, I took the quotes I thought were, were very funny. Well, no, the whole article didn't really show that he had an understanding of the benefits of Zoom calls, but yeah, we're probably trying to kind of be too kind to him now. One more um, article here I thought was interesting, and that's the Irish Times as well, is players Instagram and sponsored cars. Now, I'm very interested in sponsors' cars, Connor, because I'm dying for a sponsored car and I've never been offered one. So I take a lot of interest whenever I see about players having got a sponsored car. Um, 
Again, I've I've definitely said this on the show before and still no offer of a sponsor car has come my way. But anyways, look, that's OK. Um, I, I won't keep going on about it. But this is more about the Instagram stuff, right? So this is Trevor um, Twamley. He's a co-founder of sports management agency Sports Endorse. And they're representing about 100 GEA players. I hadn't heard of Sports Endorse uh, before reading this, but Trevor is the co-founder. And he was given some information about how much players are making on Instagram. Um, so uh, Dean Rock is, this is in the article, Dublin's Dean Rock can command 1,300 per sponsored in Instagram post. I nearly, wow. fell off, I nearly fell off my chair. He has nearly 37 followers on the social media platform. Galway footballer Damien Comer can demand 665 per post and a third of that for an Instagram story. Uh, Jewel, Tipperary Jewel star Orla Dwyer, who's over with the Brisbane Lions, she can charge 830 for a post to her 24,000 followers. Did you have any idea they were making that kind of money on this? Like, I mean, I I, I, I was shocked. No, I, I'm, I'm shocked as well, Willie. I, I would like to know how many sponsored inter- Instagram posts Dean Rock might do in a year, for example. Uh, because say if he was to do one a month, you know, he he's what he's making close to 15 grand. Would he be if he does two a month, you're, you're, you're up on 30 grand, which is like a like an auxiliary salary for himself, really. But I'd love to know kind of how much, you know, how many Instagram sponsored Instagram posts Dean Rock might get a year, because I, I suppose I was just kind of comparing it to, let's say, let's say if Dean Rock did a media day for a certain brand, I'm sure he'd get that same you know, that same amount of money, but and players would do maybe, you know, four or five of those a year. So I didn't know. I didn't know the level of money that, that they get, Willie, but I don't necessarily kind of um, begrudge them for, for, for using their profile to kind of oh, no. make a few no. quid inside as well either. Oh, no, I wouldn't. Be, I wouldn't be giving out about that at all. I've I've gotten one um, thing like that. It was a, a mobile phone company. I think I got a free mobile phone. I think I got 3000 euros for about 10 social media post. It was five on Twitter, five on um, Facebook. And like, I mean, I, I wasn't active on Facebook at all, so that didn't make much sense. But I put in a bit of effort into the into the tweets and tried to make them kind of funny or whatever. But like, I mean, nothing like that has ever come my way before or after that. But that's, I suppose, maybe three grand with 10 posts, which is 300 a post, which I thought, like, I mean, I was delighted with that, like 300 for just typing a tweet. What the, this is fairy tale stuff. But like, I mean, 1,300 like I mean it's just off the charts for typing out a tweet yeah or yeah. an Instagram and it, all this stuff happens on Instagram I've, I went off Instagram I found it the most fake boring um, absolute nothing app I've ever had to go on in all my life I del- completely deleted it you will do nothing only waste time in your life on that app yeah but only loads of people waste time on that app right <laughs> so like that's you know, what it's if- for Exactly. If I if I'm wasting loads of time of an evening, I'm likely to check out what Dean Rock is doing on Instagram. You know, yeah. so whatever whatever brand is paying him that money, that's that's their job done. And just to go back to even that comparison with the if Dean Rock was doing a media day, what would happen is he doing a round of interviews, the brand will get a mention, you know, it'll go out in all the newspapers and websites. But like you can via a sponsored Instagram post, for example, you can reach that target audience more directly. You could probably be more explicit about it. Do you know what I mean? It, it's not it's not a mention tucked away in the bottom of an article. Yeah. And you're challenging, challenging, channeling an audience that, you know, on a platform that they engage with more than they would do, you know, on newspapers and, and websites and stuff. So, like, you know, I don't know, do they make this, you know, uh, like, do the, do the brands make the money back? You know, is, is, is it worth their while? I'd say it is. But just you mentioned sponsored car. Like, 
if I see Dean Rock driving a sponsored car, do I am I necessarily going out and buying it? No, but I can tell you any intercounty player I follow, I probably know what sponsored car they're driving. So yeah. that's the, the job done for the brand as well. Brand know? brand awareness, yeah, that's the thing. But like, I mean, how do you quantify any advertising? You don't really. You just yeah. it's just been proven to work. <laughs> however, <laughs> so whoever it just plants that seed in your subconscious, it absolutely works. And there's no huge way of kind of quantifying how much it works. Jeez, without getting really stupid, I often think of like a Pepsi ad and Beyonce's paid like 10 million to come into this ad and I'm like how many feckin' cans of Pepsi do they have to sell just to get back the money that they've paid her never mind pay all their employees and anyways I'm talking complete nonsense now about how sometimes advertising would confuse you you need to get back on Instagram and earn the money Willie that's your <laughs> <laughs> well whatever whatever it takes to get a sponsored car I'm willing to do that's okay I'm just going to say that um, well, I thought your ship might have sailed because you stopped playing Willie but Paul Galvin is, is still is still doing well off those Audi posts long after he's retired so you know you need to tap up some local dealer in Port Leach yeah and we know listen I'm a media personality here Connor. I have a lot more on offer here than, than just an ex-player you have to remember that I have to talk myself up here I usually talk myself down anyways last story of the day um, is oh yeah the the donkeys don't win derbies I, I, I was very disappointed during the week when I read this so this was in the Echo Live um, this is the second week we've done a piece um, from there so donkeys don't win derbies this is the and we, we did the it was Jesus it was 1990 I'm fairly sure and Tipperary were defending All-Ireland champions and the whole story along was that Babs Keaton had said before the Munster final, donkeys don't win derbies, which was a complete insult to Cork. And this rattled Cork so much and rattled them up that they eventually beat Tipperary in the Munster Championship. They went on then and actually beat a fancy Galway team in the final. And this actually, he didn't actually say donkeys don't win derbies in the context of Cork hurling at all. Like, I mean, he was asked by Ger Canning, um, of course, you have to respect the team motivated and trained by people like Father Michael O'Brien and Gerald McCarthy. And Bab said, um, you still need the talent. You still need the players. Several managers in, in recent weeks got credit for being great motivators. But you, if you don't have the talent, you can't win a derby with, with a donkey. And that was it, Connor. He never actually said it at all. And I, I couldn't believe it because it kind of has gone down in history as one of the greatest kind of almost insults, trash talk in the history of the GA and it wasn't even meant. Yeah, and, and that that's a fair enough comment as well that Babs made, wasn't it? To, to know that like, you know, you can't, you could be the best, basically he's saying that you could be the best manager in the world, but if you don't have the players, you know, that's it's, it's not going to be any good to you. And I think that's completely fair. But because it's Babs, because of his personality, and because it is, a, it, even though he, he probably didn't say it as it's been quoted since, it is, it, is a, it is a very good quote, but it just goes to show you, what was that, 1990? And now we're 2021 and you're only finding out the story behind it now. And just, just just shows you that that's how things like that can can stay in the public consciousness, even if the, there's only a grain of truth to them, you know, that 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 long after, you know. Yeah, exactly. Maybe I'm a bit slow to it and maybe other people did uh, know about it. I'm not too sure. It just come, came as a big shock to me. So maybe some other people might not um, have known the story. Right. We'll leave it there, Connor, and we'll come back with Bernard Flynn. Come here, I want you to talk us through the goal you scored in the county final after 15 seconds. I want you to tell me when you had goal on your mind. Yeah, you've probably had a few 15 seconds experiences yourself. <laughs> Wake me up, show me what you got, because I don't want no one minute, man. 
So Mead legend Bernard Flynn is on tonight's Laker Gale. It's on TG Cahar, as we know, and it's on at 9.30. It's a great show. I watched it this morning. Um, and Bernard joins us on the line now. Congratulations, Bernard. I watched it, like I said. It's a great show. It's a bit of a roller coaster from the highs of winning all Ireland's to the lows of crippling injuries and losing your entire business. I know. <laughs> Listen to me. I'd be running out the door, I think, when it's on because... Um, but it's about yourself, uh, Willie. It's a little bit different. And you try to come across and give the message honestly. And it's not moaning or groaning in any way. To the contrary, it's actually, you're not, there's no way of feeling sorry or anything like that. But just trying to give us a little bit of a story to the man behind football, if you like. And um, yeah, it was a little bit raw. And uh, I think the good, the bad, and the ugly is in there somewhere, as you said yourself. But I hope people get something out of it. Yeah, well, that's it. Well, I suppose the, the raw kind of part came towards the end where you're lying in a hospital bed, you're in there for a week after a hip operation, the crash had just happened, you just lost your business, which was valued at 29 or 25 million, you know, and you're kind of explaining that's the worst, <laughs> like it doesn't get any lower than that. Yeah, and probably with the show, it was hard to get in. I would have loved to explain to some people uh, the pitfalls, and I have actually done that since with younger people or people in business who became sort of got into trouble and became sort of embroiled in stuff that I had uh, was involved in. So um, it doesn't matter. The value is irrelevant. It's just I built a, a substantial business from nothing um, on my own and I was so proud of it. But when that crash came and it's hard to get that message across, literally, it's like something, a tsunami, when they called back in the, their loans and a very good business model. It was going for 16 years, the same company, from nothing. And then overnight, you lose your business because they call in their loans and they close in on you and they foreclose, that's it. So that was just, I mean, pretty horrific. But listen, it is what it is. I, I'm a big believer, Willie, in you, your own wins, you own them, your own losses, your own mistakes. And uh, I'm from the school that, listen, you've got to get back on the horse again and try and get going with a young family at the time. So it wasn't easy, but listen, I'm expecting no no, uh, you know, there's no feeling sorry, nothing like that. You just try and get over it. But it was very, very, very tough and pretty traumatic. traumatic. And there is scars. And anyone says there isn't any scars when you go something like that. Of course, there's a few scars. But you get on with it and you dust yourself down. You just get going again the best you can. Well, you, like you're a naturally very positive person and you're you're a people person. Like when that was all happening to you and it was blow after blow, like, I mean, did you hide away from people? You know, how, how did you deal with it? That's actually a very good question, and and there, you know it is. And no matter, and I would be strong with adversity, or I'd be strong with issues or problems. And friends of mine would come to me, and I'd be a go-to type of guy for that. And uh, love helping people anywhere I can, at any turn. I love to help somebody. But you do. I had my dark days. I had my tears. I had my sleepless nights. I had many of them, Colin. And I swear to God, that is the truth. I probably didn't say that to that extent in the programme, but I had many, many of them, my wife included, sat down with the kids. They were phenomenal through it all. I mean, phenomenal. So, um, yeah, Teddy scars, and I had my dark days and lonely days. And you do, you do shy away. I learned very quickly friends that, you know, you know, behind your back to be saying things. But those things never bothered me. I never cared a bit like yourself. I never really cared what anyone said about me. But, and that stands me in that situation. But what is tough is, when you have to face people just after the moment it all happens and goes belly up, um, you have to look people in the eye. And you know what I did? I stared them down. I, I met them. I probably hid away for a week or two to get my bearings together. I'd yeah. lost my hip. Um, I, I, you know, I'd lost everything. I had no car when I came out. I'd, you know, um, 
the business had always gone. So, listen, and then after the few years after, you're fighting to save your own family home. That's on the line and all that end of it as well. So there's a good bit more there. I'm not the only one. I won't be the last one. And as I say, um, wouldn't the likes of Jim Steins, Holly O'Shea, Adele Dyne and Michael's wife who's in the programme and stuff like that. So there's an awful lot of people I know would love to have the problems. And I do say, and I, I believe it now, I still am one of the lucky ones, a great family, three wonderful kids. And hey, you get a few injuries, you get a few knocks, and you get back up and you get going again. That's it. The the injuries, we'll get to the injuries um, in a little while, but like all, all that sounds absolutely terrible and, you know, really hard to live through, but it could have been even worse. You were very close to playing for loud, um, Bernard, because you <laughs> you grew up in Drogheda and only your father built a house on the right side, as you would say, of the river boy. You'd, you'd have, we, we, we might never have heard of you. Oh, Jesus, Colin Kelly was on to me yesterday. And I know Seamus O'Hanlon, I know Stephen White, I know so many of the judges and all the boys up there, Peppy Smith and them all. I mean, I have some great friends, a great town. I mean, I socialised them and the crack and the fun. There's a whole section of the programme, Willie, that I'm looking at the programme when I see that. I said, and I said this to Sean, I'm after saying that Sean Boylan rang me just before uh, we went to near here. I said, Sean, when you look at the fucking thing tonight, I said, I did a whole programme of development, crack and fun and stories and I said there's none of them in it so um, he says I could write a book he said about you and the carry on you Beggy O'Malley whatnot. so I had great fun in Drogheda there's no doubt but um, thanks be to God my father built the house on the right side of the river Boyne, as you said the B side <laughs> about 500 yards and people don't realise it I was in school in Drogheda in primary school and secondary school and I probably would have ended up playing uh, in Loud which a great GA town and football town but yeah it was that close and that, that's the fine margins that I wouldn't be speaking to you today more than likely if you had stayed in Drogheda where we were living. I thought it was a funny line out of you in the show. You said when you went in onto the Mead panel, um, you thought uh, some of the older lads were a bunch of savages. Who who were you referring to as the savages? Well, that's actually probably a nice name of what I really thought <laughs> I did. And I, I sort of elaborated on it a bit, but in fairness to the show, they can it was probably six hours footage that has put into 50 minutes. Yeah. So I get it. And they've done a great job. I mean, they're great people what they do. Eh, Ron and Sarah and Keen and that. So what I'd answer you there is that, I mean, the likes at the time of, you know, Mick Lyons, Horrick Lyons, um, Kerry McEntee, Liam Harnan, Colm O'Rourke. When I say that it was daunting and I, I wouldn't say they particularly liked me when I was in first. I might have had a bit of gel, a bit of brill cream, a bit of... <laughs> did, I mean, they were that these guys didn't even know what a deodorant was you know they didn't know and I would bring stuff in the bag and it was a bit probably ahead of me time with maybe a little bit of Mali like that and I was like something out of out of Mars when I came in first with white shoes a change of gear change of clothes after a match that type of thing a young fella 18, 19 but they knocked the living shit out of me at training and they sorted me out very quickly I can assure you <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> so like, I mean, we're still savages the, the, like you weren't a typical mead player because you were you were small. Like I mean, you could look after yourself, but like I mean, you can take it as a compliment. You've been kind of like a pretty boy, which was not the mead look at the time. Totally, I mean, I'm being honest. It was even worse than that. I, I was no more equipped. At I played minor in '83 and and under 21 and senior in the same year. I came in. Sean Boylan, a great story. I actually said it to money 15 minutes ago. Sean, do you remember the night you invited me into the panel with Robbie O'Malley and myself? We won the junior final in October. Sorry, end of September. And you came straight over to Eastmead outside Drogheda to a hotel. We were all out of our minds drunk at half 12 or 1 o'clock. And you came straight across the room, sat down with yourself and Bobby, when we could hardly speak, and said, lads, I'm bringing you to meet senior panel. 
That's what actually happened. He made that time to drive an hour that night in the junior final. Wow. I was no more equipped to go in there than the man in the moon. I mean, I don't, there was no split conditioning and, and I was a scrawny, skinny, 10, 10 and a half stone. But listen, you had to just try and, you know, organize and get some, you know, find your own mechanisms to survive and different things. And listen, it took me a while to have to say in the patience with me and uh, I probably really shouldn't have probably made it on that team because I was against everyone what they stood for really, you know. Well, that's it. But like, I mean, the footage of you, like, I think it was the 84 Centenary oh. Cup, you got your break kind of in the first team. It was the semi-final, you got 1-3. The footage of you getting that 1-3 compared to the, the league you won in 1994, you, you, were, you were a much stockier fella by then. Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you learn. I, I started to do, I th- those days there was no real gyms. I mean, honestly, and people, uh, in my own son, and it, it just laughs. And it is, it's, it's so funny when you're working with young lads, even I see the programs that, and the, the, what's been done with the under 20s now, even myself and the coaches and all that, and of it, very virtually, what with programs, what we're doing with them the SSC side. But I just would, did, did the basic stuff, Colin. You might be the same. I did my press ups, you know, I had small, little, few, little sort of old weights, um, sit ups. Um, push-ups, press-ups, all that type of thing, a little bar on the, the, the top of a, a door that you pull, pull up, all that end of it. So it was basic stuff to make it stronger. But I started yeah. to eat. I mean, my, my diet was shite when I went in there first. Absolutely dreadful. I mean, you know, uh, but I, I would say um, the only thing I did, uh, seven days a week I did practice. It's the only, my wife, God help her, she's about, she's about 20 yards away from me here now. I mean, I mentioned football. Seven nights a week, I practiced, and our dates at the time, I had five sisters, and Drogheda was like the Miami of the East Coast. And the crack and the fun at night, the biggest problem myself and the Mali and that had was to stay out of Drogheda and stay out of the town uh, when the matches were going on and football. We were disciplined enough, but we were in there, we lived in there most of the time, and it wasn't. So my sisters were going out, and there was she coming up to the field to kick the ball back to me and practice. So that's, what, that's the only thing that stood to me, because... If I didn't have two feet at that time, I would never have got near the team. I've no doubt about that. None. But, and and that, that's interesting that it's because you had the three, the five sisters, none of them would practice with you. So it was your father. Um, it was a very good story. He he used to bring you practice and then he'd get home from work and he'd be tired. And he's like, I'll, I'll put this lad off this now. And I'll say, listen, we'll, I'll only go with you if you just kick only with your left foot. And he says, if you kick with your right, I'm going home. And you never, you never kicked with the right at all. No, because I'd only won foot. I, it, like, you didn't, you're going back, uh, this is like, it's 45 years or whatever, this 46, 70. And uh, yeah, the two feet, um, and I got going with the two feet very young. And, you know, I, I, I'd, I was a big, big believer in that. One became one of the few strengths I had. I had a lot of weaknesses, some of my teammates will tell you, but one of my few strengths was I had two feet. And by the time I was 12 or 14, it didn't matter either off either side. That, right. that was how, how, uni- how unique would that have been back then? I, it was probably listen. I'm not, you don't like talking about yourself, God, but I, it was unique in one sense because it got me out of so many holes in club football, which was tough in me at the time, and with underage in me um, at minor under 21 under 16, it, it did stand to me. There's no question because there was probably very few in the county that were equal off both sides or in Leinster. And I used to look at Mikey Sheehy, my childhood hero. Um, if you look back then. I mean, Canavan and guys that that came afterwards, but to have two feet back then was definitely solely the only reason I was on an inter-county team, I would say, definitely.
Yeah, you you told a good story about your yourself and your friend Dave Sinnott. So you made your debut for kind of well, your your kind of first kind of big mark on the intercounty scene in the eighty four centenary cup where you got one three in the semi final. By eighty six, then you won you had won the Leinster, and you're marking Dave Sinnott, Dublin cornerback, who you work with. Your two wives are sitting up in the stand. <laughs> you're sitting up in the stand watching this. You're about to you're about to do a meet and greet after the match. Uh, the two of you, and you and him start blackguarding each. Other. I mean, I tried to put across on the show, um, and it, it was the only, it was one of the few times in my life. And Tommy Smith was another one. With Leash, and it, that piece was left out, which is a shame, and it was no fault of anybody's. But Dave and myself were great mates, and we, the women, so we socialised together. We worked together every day, and um, I'm going to tell a story that that was left out. That it, it's fucking brilliant. This is some story, but. When, you, when the people see tonight the story we're working together, we work together every day. We're great mates, and they in the previous against the final, had a good match and a free match we played. But they put the left half back to cornerback with his pace, and that threw me out because I lunch and coffee and dinner with Dave during the week. We never spoke much about football, and uh, but that's that's they sprung that on Dave and myself. I didn't know it. Right. But he said, he's clean and he was fast, but he started hitting me fist into the into the gut. And I had words with him, and another ball I went for it. But anyway, I turned back and I opened him, I split him badly. And uh, we were to meet. We're, the two eyes were sitting in the stand together, sitting. We all we made a pact. We'd meet afterwards, meet the fifty publicans, a big uh, sort of a group meet and greet for tenants who were both reps with with our uh, Michael Gilroy and Tony Haddon, who was the, uh, played it down in the sixties. The great Tony Haddon. They were our two bosses. And I came out after the match. They were sent off, but he was crying. Met her, she gave me a bollocking, and rightly so, probably. But I didn't care, we won the last final, so I had the medal. And uh, I went up for the eating turn up, never turned up to the meet and greet. And I waited around the torch on by and I had to stay on. And I found him around 12 o'clock that night. And uh, I rode off my car that night, and it's just on the program, um, about two or three in the morning with Dave. And I had to do a promotion in Gibney's Malahide on the bank holiday Monday the next day. And who drove me and helped me the next day? Only Dave Sinnott. What a man. Jesus. So I wrote off my car. But the best one was the number one later at my stag. Himself and Charlie Redmond came to my stag. And they came to my stag and left. They were, they were only home. Dave was only home for his honeymoon that evening. And Marie says, listen, stay out till 12 or 1. At 5 o'clock in the morning, there was no mobiles. But we were late drinking somewhere after a nightclub. Word came back to me through a guard. David smashed his car, but Charlie was in crutches already with a bad injury. So I got a taxi out to the scene, and there's Charlie, spread eagle on the ground, <laughs> crutches everywhere, and they killed the cow stone dead in the middle of the road. And Dave wrote <laughs> off his car <laughs> at my stag in the same year. Jesus, they're oh, wild days. It was wild days, and uh, but they left that bit out the end of it. And I, I only talked to Dave a while back about it. I said, and Charlie Redmond, and we had a great crack a while ago. I'm not surprised. And they laughed. Oh, just a joke. But the night seen the cow dead on the road, the car smashed, and I said, "Deja vu, the night the lens the final." Because I, I stayed looking for him, and I would have had my car when you first stayed looking for him. And my stag, the same thing happened. So listen, it was the wild west back then, but it was off season. Jesus, definitely. <laughs> what I what I'm what I'm interested in is like 
being able to handle yourself back then, uh, Bernard, because like you said, you were a small enough fella and you were the top corner forward in the game. And like you're getting these digs and you're getting these punches and like there's nothing really else to do other than maybe throw your elbow back into the fella's stomach or even up higher if you can. Like, how did you manage, you know, taking care of yourself and not be kind of bullied around by cornerbacks? And that was kind of the trade back then. Yeah, I mean, the first time it happened, I mean, I was, I mean, I would have been ended up in hospital, I knocked out a good few times. The first one was with Jim McCurr, the cornerback from Armagh. I woke up in Daisy Hill Hospital in Monaghan. I scored a goal a point looking for the far end of the field, and he just absolutely knocked me clean out from behind, and I woke up in the ambulance, on the way to the ambulance. But those days, them, them things happened quite a bit, but I mean, I got, I mean, I didn't wake, if you ask me now, if I could come back or wake up again in heaven or come back again a second life, I would, only one thing I would do was come back and maybe do a few things to a few choice cornerbacks that I didn't do to. It's one of the few regrets I have. So while you get to learn to mind yourself, um, I, 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 got a, um, I got the wrong end of the stick most of the time, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> you're bound to be but that's the whole danger if anyone's listening that's a corner forward and I've played in there and somebody's given it to you and you might give it back to them but your back is to them you don't know when you don't know when this yeah. retribution is going to come it's a very vulnerable position to be in No, that, I think that's a brilliant point and I was trying to make that point to people so many times like the, the scene in the 86th dance final the Dave Sinnott one was the 88th dance final but the 86th dance final I'm looking up the other end of the field and I got a ball I'm watching the other end of the field and a piss and wet Lenska final day, a horrible day, a horrible match. And he just closed his fist from behind and puts my lights out completely. And I woke, and I was knocked out completely. And that's the way it was then. And I was a bit naive. So, I mean, you just learned uh, the best you can. And, and it is, it's all part of it. I'm not saying every bit of it was right, but that's the way it was back then. You just, you went with the flow. You just, and if, if you went inside into a meat dressing room before or after, and you started to moan and groan, and didn't look after yourself. Uh, you just there's only one thing they'd be doing with you, and they'd be sorting you out. That was it. They wouldn't listen. That was it. End of story. Yeah. That's yeah, what it was. Yeah, it was the way. Tommy Carr said you, you were the type of guy uh, you wanted to get a belt at um, because you were you were a good trash talker. And I often notice uh, I was a decent trash talker myself, Bernard. But you, you actually never bo- never <laughs> trash talk. I you, never did. Did you not? Not at all. Don't mind Tommy the bollocks. God forgive me. He's a good. He's a good. He's a good friend of mine here in Mullingar. And Tommy, I actually when I seen and got the we got the first view of it there a week or two ago. I, I rang him. I said, "You are some bollocks." And he burst his arse laughing on the phone and he said, um, "Yeah, the trash talk." I said, "Tommy, you know I never trash talk." I says, "That's nice coming from you." And I didn't actually trash talk. And a few of. Um, cornerbacks that would tell you that now I didn't know there's a few things you'd say to fellas that were at you but um, Tommy's good a great friend of mine and all that but Tommy couldn't resist he had, Tommy would always have to have the last word at the edge and that was his that was his way now listen if there was ever a fella that was lined up to be, to be hit and his belt in our dressing room the number one at the top of the list was Tommy Carr really oh lads couldn't hit him often enough and belt him often enough so <laughs> I mean it, it was the other way around but Tommy with the trash talking he's the only little white lie in the programme and I pulled him up and, and we were great mates and we had a great crack about it and a bit of a laugh that's all Kamira, I want to talk to you about the full forward line, the the Bernard Flynn, Colin O'Rourke, and Brian Stafford. Like, I mean, I presume when you came in out of minor, did did it put an arm around you and see the potential? Rick, this could be a full forward line now that we'll win something with. Or how did they how did they deal with you when you came in? No, I was playing minor, and then I didn't play. We doing twenty one final myself and Brian Stafford. We Kildare. We lost it. Then the final in the minor against Kildare in eighty three. But this. 
The under-21, two years later, we were six points down, and myself and Stafford got two, 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 three to win it. And I became very close to Brian. I was very close. What a guy. I mean, an amazing, amazing human being. Most down-to-earth, humble guy. Still the same staff. Very underrated. People, apart from the freeze, didn't realise how good he was with the ball. We probably didn't get enough ball through from general play, but great guy. Didn't really look that that was going to happen early on. But Colin Morocco, I've always said it, Wally, that to me, Going back years, I always said he was the best and greatest meat footballer I've ever seen, the best I ever played with, without a shadow of a doubt. But it just happened, I think, around 86, 5, 6, and then it sort of happened. Now, we probably only had six or seven years, good, really good years together. You've got to remember after the 84 um, Leinster final, we beat my double two points I played, and the Senior Cup you're speaking about. We played against Leach in 85 in Tullamore and the bet the shit out of us. That was the change yeah. of our whole attitude that day Wally the e-boys had a great side and we sat down after that and the change in the training and the attitude and rope was at the fore of that but yeah it was a full forward line we done a lot of it on the field ourselves Colin we really did we I would come out at an odd time when things need to be changed um, to half forward line for 10-15 minutes we'd throw a team out Brian would do it or Colin and we would take a lot of that on board ourselves to make changes not Sean uh, in training so much but we had a good understanding and there was no one selfish. Well, the boys might say I was a little selfish because O'Rourke always slags me for that. But um, Brian Stafford and O'Rourke uh, were brilliant to play with. And O'Rourke was great in the physical side of trying to look after you. Um, maybe once or twice, uh, and the trash, there was trash talking in odd time for the key bar and Eamon Heary. And you try and sort a few of them guys out as well. But um, I'd say they were unbelievable men. But as friends and as fellas to this day, um, when I look at them, I get goose pimples. When I meet them, I get goose pimples. And I look them in the eye and just say, you know, you had some little thing special going with them. But they're brilliant fellas. And we get a few jars and a bit of crack going. Staff, but people don't realise the fun with a rock. A rock is phenomenal fun when you get them going in the right situation. And I can always take the piss out of my wind them up and get the best out of them. So it's great crack. Yeah. Um, bad days as well, you know. He he was hard as nails, O'Rourke. Like I mean, Jesus Christ, he oh. was t- he was one like not only was he a brilliant player, but he was as bloody tough as nails. Like I remember the '91 final because we did this show, we did a few nostalgia shows during the first lockdown right. last March, and like you were unbelievable that day. And the second, I think you got five of your six from play when O'Rourke came on, and you were you know getting ball yeah. off him. What what struck me that day, Bernard, was from watching that whole game, kind of you know as an adult rather than remembering when I was a child, yeah. is the amount of shite ball that went into you, Martin O'Connell, would you not have pulled him aside and said, here, mate, will you will you give us the odd low one? Well, if I, I touch on the programme with the snow coming in and the ball. <laughs> yeah, and the yeah. Martin, in fairness, the crack when we re- ring each other, he'd ring me on the road regularly. I spoke to him there a week before last. And I, I, I always say and refer to Martin, I can't believe you just said that to me. I say, Martin, oh, Martin, I say the the legend with the sta- in the stamp with the head in the stamp that could every time he passed the ball there was snow coming in the top. The man drove it a hundred yards in the sky in the top of every time. And now you were saying, Matt, can you punt a ball in in front of me, please? Is that too hard? You know, yeah. it, was, it was actually great crack. But you're right. But Martin, a great guy. But uh, yeah, passing the ball snow coming down on top of you every single time you're right so like I mean did did, did, did you ever look at the, the football then maybe in the noughties where there was much more control ball going in and going like that's the football that you were kind of born to play I know so listen Robbie O'Malley refers to it and the way it was in me they didn't you know we, we tried to change and it was very hard if you like now um, Liam Harnham became very good at passing the ball punting off his foot 
Um, Mick Lyons coming out, they did evolve, you know, and there were players like at the time around the middle part of the field. That's the way football, when I came on the meeting force, the yeah. boys would get the ball and it was it was like hurling. They taught it a hurl. Drive it as far and as high and as long as you can. Yeah. That's the way it was type of thing. But in Mead, you're expected to win or to contest the ball. And if you let an opponent just walk out with the ball, I mean, that was a big black mark against you. So in one way, it helped you try and win some ball that maybe you shouldn't have contested. And uh, that was no harm either. But the odd time it would have been nice. When you look back at some of the football, it wasn't great. I know that. But I'd love to get some of the ball the boys are playing in now in front, in front of the corner, like forward, like yourself. You just get it coming out onto it. And they, but listen, that's the way of the world, that's the way it was. And I tell you, when I used to complain at meetings and stuff like that, or say it, tell you one thing, the next night you train, they'd, they'd make sure you didn't complain the following night. <laughs> <laughs> but, that, but that's the thing, I'd say you'd obviously, like that was the football then, is looking back on it, you can't compare, it's hard to compare eras, but like looking back on it, and I started, you know, in the 90s when it was, I look back at some matches then, and you, I'd be wondering, why did I just drive that down the field? I'd be playing wing back. But like, I mean, that was the football. And instead of you know, you knowing those balls are coming in, you're adapting your game to maybe get a knockdown or a break and you're in on that. And that was a skill in itself, I suppose, that's probably gone now. It is. And, and the one thing i got to be fair and respect, and I, I know we won, my career, we won as much as we lost nearly. It was three national leagues. They, they meant a lot back in the day. But I played nine Leicester finals, one five, one four, four All-Irelands, five, they're drawn one, two and two. So, we know we knew both sides of it, but I, I can't emphasize or the program doesn't do any justice really. To when I say column GA teams in the history, I don't think I ever met a more honest and committed bunch on the field when it was going for fifty fifty ball. And that's the one thing about you know, the lines is the McEntees, the Harnans, the O'Malley's, O'Connell's. Like the way they put their but it wasn't dirt, don't get me wrong, with a few tough guys, Foley and Kyle and fellas like that, but what I'm saying is going honestly for the ball. Their will, their attitude and their unbelievable will to win and die to win that ball for their teammates was something to behold. And I don't think they got the credit for that, a lot of those players, because they were... Un- you, you, I speak to the Dublin players that we played against. And Tommy Carr would sit in my house over the years and a glass of wine or beer. and we'd be t- He'd be actually telling me about incidents and times that they couldn't believe. They never met that before. That ferocity of their putting their bodies, no regard what way to put their bodies on the line to win the ball. So I think that's what they stood for more sudden flair and um, skill and stuff like that. But a few of us tried to change it, but we were knocking our heads against the brick wall at times. <laughs> <laughs> Come here, the, the, the show talked about your Mullingar Shamrocks connection and you obviously you won four count or well you're injured maybe for what were one or two of them. You won at least two on the field anyways. You have a leash connection too. You transferred to St Joseph's in, in, in nineteen ninety one. Um and because you were in business in Pedigree Corner. So anyone listening from Carlo, yeah. Kenny, Kildare or Leash will know about Pedigree Corner. And it was kind of a famous old kind of bar nightclub where there could be some fierce battles played out in the car park outside afterwards. But you ran that or you owned that for two years and you, you actually transferred to St. Joseph's and Leash. I just did the year when I went down that time uh, with Michael in the business and the whole lot. We um, we bought the nightclub and that piece is in the show. And I I, I don't I know saying it and I don't really understand it was left out of you like type of thing. But anyway, um, it's it, you know it, they couldn't fit everything in. But Michael Dempsey was my best man at my wedding, one of my great friends and an absolutely class guy, a gentleman. 
uh, Tommy and Anne Dempsey I know them all well at their wedding and Tommy was sent off Martin Meany and the final but yeah great people and a great time and probably got me a leg up to start my own business that's what exactly it done but no, right. I won the four, four um, championships on the field with um, Mullingar Shamrocks I ended up in, at half time stretched off in the hospital one of them with a, with a dirty belt um, for the second half I was in hospital but I was on the field for the four of them and look I had eight nine years and the fun and the crack in Mullingar with the Dennis Caroons and the, the Ned Moores and Mick O'Reilly's, Tom Orsley, Mick Collins. We had, we had a great time. When we played screen in the Leinster quarterfinal here in Castletown, you could, it was jammed. I mean, you couldn't fit any more in. And they had Mick, Mick O'Dowd, Trevor Giles, John McDermott, Colm O'Rourke, uh, Willie Finnerty. did six um, county players and we beat them that day. So I had great fun, I had great memories. I'm 30 years here now, come would you believe? 30 years in Mullingar. Had a business for 25 years here as well. Um, and, you know, a shop here my wife had as well we finished up six seven years ago on that so great times great memories great fun here with them and the people Alicia and Tommy Smith and Michael Dempsey and all of those it was hard to fit everybody in there's a beautiful piece that I thought might be in with Jim Steins as well at the time I went to see, say goodbye to him in Australia so if there's a 50 minute show I call him I'm going to be running the phone is offered there to a people that think they should have been in or mentioned <laughs> and should have been but I had no say in it they did a wonderful job but yeah. it was virtually impossible to put every piece in, and that's the, a little bit disappointing. But what can you do? What can no, you well, do? That, well, well, that's true. It's only it's only fifty minutes when you take in the ad breaks, and like yeah. I mean, yeah. considering considering your kind of career and life, like I mean, there's bound to be loads of pieces that are going to be left out. You have seem to have connections um, all around all around the country. Finish up with your injuries, Bernard, because you got you, you got riddled, and like I mean, your knee, you got your knee totally messed up, and that was a bit of a, a that was a, a collision, I think with Mullingar Shamrocks but your hip had, was something that was at you from a young age and you just played through the pain barrier you've had to get your hip done you're in an awful trouble with your knee you're in awful trouble with your back and it kind of on the show kind of said that it was down to the hard training and stuff but surely that was down to the punishment you got because you know like I mean you took a terrible amount of punishment on the field yeah, from a young age, if you and I'm sure you were the same. When you go back, like you were playing adult football at 16 years of age, like I was one of the main guy up front in junior championship and I, and in mead at the time, intermediate. And you were you were an adult footballer at 16, sometimes at 15 back then. And uh, like the belts and the hits, yeah, they were, and that's just the way it was. But um, yeah, no, it's the, it's one of the few regrets you'd have. There was a lot of injuries. I, I didn't mind them. I, it's my fault. My, I take ownership of that. But um, around 20, I got a bad pain in my hip. And I used to actually go, my wife and my father would bring me out to the doctor before I'd be collecting on a Sunday morning regularly. I'd go to Bettystown to the doctor and get my own painkilling injections. I never told anybody because I was in fear of not making the team being dropped. Or That was just, you were such, it was so... There was nothing else mattered in life at the time, and uh, it didn't help. It was my own fault. It escalated the thing. But yeah, I got a hip replaced in the 42, 43, uh, knee recon- fully reconstructed. Um, and last Thursday, every six weeks, I get um, two epidurals in my back. I have to get a spinal fusion. I'll keep doing that. Professor Damien McCormick keeps me alive, a great little man in the matter hospital. So every six weeks, I get two epidurals in my back because there's four discs on. And he's made a decision, Bernie, you've got to keep this going, or it's a spinal fusion. Um, and that was from a lot of sort of belts and bangs in the back. But he, as I say, I'm alive. I can manage the pain. I get through it. And I'm strong mentally. It's mine over matter. But yeah, the body wouldn't be in good shape. I sort of had to give up golf and stuff like that. But hey, you know, there's more. What do you do? You either lie down or you keep going. And I know what's ahead of me. I know what I have to do. And uh, the spinal fusion is the one I'm trying to put off. 
um, I just hope I don't have to get that and because uh, it's a 40% uh, chance. So Damien McCormick, a great little man from me, Professor Damien McCormick, he keeps me going. When I can't get the epidurals, I can't walk. So um, Jesus. the medical professional, great. Jerry McIntyre Jerry gave me a great say, Colm, I'll leave you on this. And he, it saved my life when I'd give up the football at the end when he set up the meeting with Dr. Padamini and he said, um, Bernard, the state journey says you have to keep up your health insurance. And through thick and thin, what saved my life and gives me to be, uh, you know, the ability to be able to go into the hospital and get some work done, I've always kept my health insurance. And there's an awful lot of players in an awful lot worse situation than me to have no health insurance and they can't get the help they need. So I'd be thinking of those. Right. Brilliant, Bernard. Thanks very much for, for taking the time to talk to us. I think you're doing some work before I let you go and maybe trying to set up some sort of a, a help for pa- past players. The reason I'm saying it, I spoke with Dermot McNichol a few weeks ago and he's he's had two he had two hip replacements and he has two knees. He's actually couch bound waiting for a new waiting for new knees. Like some of you are really bet up from that era. Yeah, I mean, Colin O'Rourke's knee, Brian Stafford had his own hip done, and Finian Murta hip replaced. I mean, there's a number of our lads, Jerry McIntyre, only when I came out of the hospital the other day, up getting the epidurals with Damien McCormick, I, I rang Jerry for coffee, and he was telling me um, he's in for a knee replacement now. But yeah, going back to the likes of Dermot, what a player. I was, you know, played in 87, the compromise rule against Australia with him, a brilliant guy. But the amount of these guys that need a column. And I, I threw it out there. I'm after emailing Larry McCarthy there last week on it to see, could we not, you know, lip service or um, a token gesture or, you know, the GPA were trying to do something. They weren't really helping pass players properly. And that was something with substance to get a proper uh, pass players movement going to help players. There could be half a dozen a year, a dozen a year that really need our help. That maybe have no health insurance, they need wheelchairs, they need operations. So, yeah, just throwing it out there, we've got to get something going and I'm going to try and spearhead it. But I do need help from Co Park. And there's anyone listening out there, past players that want to help, uh, please get in contact and I'd love to get something going with the right people, with the right committee, with the right attitude. Brilliant stuff, Bernard. Thanks very much for talking to us. Look forward. Well, everyone can look forward to the show tonight. I've already seen it at, at half past nine on TG Car. Thanks, Bernard. Talk to you later. Keep up the good work, buddy. Thank you. Thanks. God bless. Bye bye. When I started running, I suppose I didn't stop. And when I got the chance to go, I said I'd stay going. So I opened up. We're only the small little fish out there, so we are, and uh, we're trying hard to make it through. But it's hard to get the brakes when you're the smaller fish. Because I love this county so much, you know. And it's just I'm delighted that the lads, the lads did it for the people of Walford today because, like, I'm hard, I'm heartbroken. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.